All right, kids, you may be dismissed to your classes. Let's take our Bibles and turn back to the historical account in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. You know, of all the people that are involved with the birth of Jesus or uh, or surrounding it in terms of uh, their placement in, in the environment of what was going on, there's really nobody that that faced greater difficulty or that had a bigger challenge to their personal life than Mary. I'm always impressed at this time of year about her character and about her reaction to a tremendous and and very uh, life-changing calling that God had given to her. And we'll detail some of the ways that that happened in a few minutes, but try to imagine this morning the, the weight the heaviness, and I don't mean that in a negative way, the weight of the responsibility that was placed on her young life and and the wide potential for possible reactions that she could have had, the ways that she could have responded to that calling. Now, we have a, a an image in our mind probably of Mary. If I say the word Mary this morning, you you instantly think of something. It may be shaped by... Uh, maybe you grew up as a, as a Roman Catholic and, and you learned to venerate her and, and she had a very high place in that church and maybe that still uh, is there for you uh, and, and you still have some of that sense of her having that, that special place. Or, or maybe we're influenced, as we say the word Mary, by, by Christmas cards and by kind of the illustrations that we have of her, whether it's riding on a donkey in the darkness or or sitting in the hay looking very blissful and, and, you know, she's just been through childbirth, but it looks like, you know, she just went to the mall for a couple hours and, and here she's holding this baby and everything's wonderful. So, so some kind of image is created in our mind when we talk about her. But it's a bit more of a challenge to really kind of get inside her head, to understand what was going through the, the vast flood of emotions, all the different things that she might have been feeling and experiencing and wondering and, and pondering in her heart, the text says, that what, what was going through her mind? How do we capture that somehow? How do we get a sense of who she really was? Because Scripture doesn't talk about her very much. It talks about her in Luke 1 and 2, and then it's kind of a, an absence here and there throughout the Gospels until we get to the cross. But, but there's really very little information about her uh, from Scripture. What we do know is that she was not in any way a spiritual novice. There's no question based on her reaction to God's calling. And the words she she says in in part of the passage that we're going to study this morning that that show that she had a great spiritual maturity and that there was a a huge depth to her faith even at at a young age. It's apparent that she was immersed in the Word of God because all throughout what we call the Magnificent, which is uh, chapter forty, uh, chapter one, verses forty-six, all the way down to fifty-five. That that in every line of that uh, kind of song or poem that she speaks, every single line contains scripture. She quotes the Old Testament at least seventeen times in ten verses. So so this is not somebody that 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 just kind of didn't know much. This is somebody that was deeply grounded in the Word of God, that knew prophecy, that knew the Old Testament that had studied and grown 
and matured to a level that, that when God calls her, not only can she quote Scripture and make the connection to the Old Testament, but her faith is unhesitant. Now, to me, that's remarkable in light of the, the calling that she gets from the Lord. And not that she's just completely willing to do it, but that she has an unbridled joy of being in the middle of the work of the Lord. Now, throughout this Christmas series, we've been trying to focus on just one phrase, just one thing that, that one of the principal figures in the Christmas account says that, that speaks to us, that not only gives us a picture into their heart, but also challenges us and calls us to something different in our own lives. And, and, and this morning, we're going to look at one phrase that Mary says. And, and for someone that's given such a great level of responsibility and a great level of difficulty, logic would say to us that she would be the most reticent. That there would be a sense that, that she, would, she would be emotionally uncomfortable, that, that, wow, this is great, and I recognize that <clears throat> it's, a, it's a huge calling from the Lord, but, but wow, there's, there's so much cost to this, and, and what does this mean for me? We would imagine that, that maybe she'd be the one that would be a little bit hesitant. I mean, Zacharias questions, how can this be that, that we're going to have a child? And, and Elizabeth believes, but, but while she's encouraged, she goes into seclusion for five months. And Joseph obeys, but we really don't ever see Joseph say anything. He's very quiet in the text. So, so they all responded in a way, but, but they had kind of some degree of of not quite being, yes, let's do this. But when we look at Mary, Mary is on board from the moment the angel appears. She's right there. She goes straight forward, even though she has the greatest burden. And, and what I want us to see this morning is how she praises the Lord and, and what she says, because it not only shows us how the Lord expects us to respond when he calls us to his work, when he, when he sets us apart for something special. But it's how he expects us to respond every single day in how we think and how we act and how we talk. So let's look at it. Just five verses this morning. Luke chapter 1, let's start in verse 46. We know the context. We've looked at it the last two weeks. We've got Zacharias. We've got Elizabeth. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. The baby in Elizabeth's womb jumps, John the Baptist, because he senses that Jesus is near and he's the forerunner for Jesus. And Elizabeth says, oh, you're so blessed. That gets us to verse 46. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. Now, while this was a tremendous honor, while this was beyond comparison what God was calling her to do and how He was going to utilize her and to be called blessed and favored even before the pregnancy started. The personal cost on Mary's life was substantial. Having the responsibility to be the earthly mother of the Son of God, to raise Him and to nurture Him 
and to hold back when instinct tells you to step in and to step in when instinct tells you to hold back because you're constantly aware that this is not just any baby. This is the Son of God. This is God in flesh. And to know that God selected you for this task. That had to be intimidating beyond our understanding, even in the easiest of circumstances. But there was absolutely nothing easy about this. And that's, that's what's really impressed my heart this week, even though I've studied this passage and you've studied this passage so many times. I want us to be aware this morning that, that this was not easy. Everything about it required a level of confident compliance and deep faith that would humble even the most mature Christian. But she's just a teenager. She's just a young woman who, who really, up until Luke chapter 1, verse 28, has no discernible calling on her life. She loves the Lord. She's living in Nazareth. She's engaged to a wonderful, righteous, humble, godly man named Joseph. Her life is spread out all in front of her. She has all kinds of hopes of what life will be, and they're going to get married, and they're going to have a great life together, and, and, and she's just normal. She's chasing not the American dream, but the Israeli dream, and she's just, she's just everything's going to be great. And then the angel shows up, and everything gets flipped. Everything gets changed. Now, Mary was wise beyond her years, and we have to know and infer from the text that, that she had to immediately understand the implications of her obedience, even as the angel spoke. But then she started to live them. I want to give you some of these this morning. You may want to write them down because this may be where you are this morning. But, but there were significant implications to obeying God at this point. The first one was the huge personal challenge of actually obeying God on this level. Why had He chosen her? What did that mean for her? Would she be up to the task? Would, would she be able to fulfill this responsibility? What did it mean long term? She clearly has an understanding that for generation after generation, that in the historical record, her name will be there. That's heady stuff for a teenager. And, and, and obedience, we need to understand this morning, usually requires something of us. Obedience is not just, well, God says to do it and I'll do it and, and no harm, no foul. Obedience requires something. And it's often something we weren't prepared to sacrifice. Or something that changes our expectations. We cannot discount the fact that Mary's life from this point on is changed in every possible way. And the only explanation she has for that, the only rationalization that she can make of why God has done that is He is asking her to do something and she's going to obey. There's no other explanation. God says, I'm going to do this. You're the one I've picked for it and I want you to obey me. Now, as we look at our own lives, is that rationale enough for us? Are you and I willing to obey the Lord when the reasoning isn't completely clear or when the end game isn't all laid out or do we require extra explanation? Do we 
do we want more understanding and more verification like Zacharias did before we're willing to obey? See, there are going to be times in our life where the Lord calls us to do something simply because He wants it to. And He's not going to give us an explanation. He's not going to rationalize it, at least not to our satisfaction. He's just going to say, this is I want, what I want you to do. And He really doesn't even owe us an explanation because He wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. If it was easy to do, if He laid out everything and said, well, I want you to do this, and here's why, and here's what's going to happen, and here's the end result, and here's what you're going to feel, but, but this is what I'm doing. I want to explain it to you so you'll be fully on board and so you don't have any question, so, so it'll be easy for you. That's not walking by faith, is it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that are not seen. So there are going to be times in your life and my life where God says, just obey. I don't need to explain myself. Just obey. Just do it because you trust me and because you love me. In those times, will we obey? And will we do it with joy? See, the second challenge that Mary had was the physical demand. She was pregnant before she had planned to be pregnant. And there's been no preparation, no warning, no intimate experience to prepare her for this moment. This wasn't the normal process of having a child. So there's a huge physiological challenge. Every facet of her, her body and her spirit is affected by that. And she's going to have to reorient her life now unexpectedly to be a mom. And she's going to feel the toll on her body and her hormones and her emotions and her schedule. But, but listen, that was probably a small cost in her mind compared to the relational and social cost. Because the third challenge she was going to face is to deal right away with Joseph's disappointment and distrust. Because Matthew 1 tells us that when, Mo, when Joseph heard the news, that he quickly and privately made plans to send her away. In other words, to break the engagement, to cut off the future relationship with her, but to do it in an honorable way, to, to put her in a different place so she wouldn't face the ridicule of the people in Nazareth, which we'll talk about in a minute. He, he wanted to do it in an honorable way, but his intention was, we're done. We're done. Now, obviously, that would have been completely devastating to Mary. I mean, I tried to imagine this week the, the conversation, the look of disappointment on his face, the look of hurt on his face, the, the fact that this was signaling a betrayal, and now she's feeling his lack of belief and his lack of confidence in her, and she sees on his face the, 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 the break of commitment and the break of love starting to automatically happen as she pleads with him, Joseph, please listen to what I'm saying. And he doesn't believe it at first. The angel has to come and confirm it to him. So Joseph, just, just picture it. What do you mean you're pregnant? Mary, come on. What? And Joseph starts to make plans. The Spirit doesn't detail any of that conversations, but listen, 
If you've ever been in a relationship where trust was broken or where you've been hurt, you, you know the feeling of that. You know the pain of compromise and broken trust. So you can imagine what that felt like. But it went beyond that. Then you've got the public whispers about her character. Because if Joseph was hesitant to believe her word, how much more were there going to be people that were gossiping and, and resenting her? I mean, this was juicy news in Nazareth. Nazareth was a small town with not a very good reputation anyway. And who better for the jealous uh, teenagers and the resentful moms who had looked at Mary and knew that she was godly and knew that she loved the Lord and knew that she walked by faith. Who better for them now who were jealous and maybe not walking with the Lord to kind of go, <laughs> yeah, I knew it. I knew she was too good for, for her shoes. I, I knew it. It was all a front. Can you imagine this, the snarkiness and the, and the whispers and the looks and the raised eyebrows and the questions that were spoken about that were just a little bit too loud as she walked by to make the point? Everybody knew about this. So there were whispers. And then there was the social stigma as she walks back into town three months pregnant. Why haven't you been here? Why are you pregnant? Why haven't you been with Joseph? What's going on here? I mean, you got to really, we got to infuse ourselves into the text. And listen, this wasn't just socially awkward. There were legal penalties for adultery, the most severe being death by stoning. And since the, the believability factor of a virgin pregnancy and the story that she's telling with the baby being the son of God, I mean, that's a stretch to say the least. So imagine the, the pressure. Doubts are rampant. The truth is being undermined by people's assumption. And Mary's right in the middle of it. And she knows the truth, but she's aware that almost nobody believes her. So standing for the truth had a personal cost. It had a social cost. When that's us, when we're standing firm for our convictions, does the need to be liked, does the need to be accepted, does the need to be approved by others have a stronger appeal than standing for truth. More and more, church, we're going to have to face that in the days ahead. Are we going to stand for what we know is true or are we going to back down? And then there, were, there was the unimaginable personal cost. How her hopes and her dreams had been sacrificed. You know, wedding planning is a billion-dollar industry. And babies and planning and all that stuff isn't far behind it. Because women especially dream and plan how to make everything perfect and how to involve people and how to share that big moment and it's going to be wonderful and you have a baby shower and, and you have a wedding shower and, and it's just it's all just so hopeful. Mary didn't have that opportunity. She didn't get that. Socially, she's on an island. She can only hope maybe to pull something together that the few friends that might come alongside her that, that weren't speculating and criticizing and gossiping about her, that, that maybe they would come alongside her. But, but beyond just, oh, I can't have a baby shower, there's the alteration of her hopes. 
The fact that the plans that she and Joseph had talked about and dreamed about and prayed about, the fact that their life was going to play out, they hoped, in a certain way, that that's no longer possible. The Lord has dramatically changed the plan. How would you and I respond? I've been in those situations before. You've been in those situations before. I'm, I'm reasonably sure in a lot of times in my life when the Lord has dramatically changed the plans, my first reaction wasn't joy and praise. It wasn't confidence. Oh, Lord, this is great. Yes, you have dramatically allowed my life to be changed. I'm completely uncertain about my future. Praise God. We start to wonder and worry. And if it gets extreme, we get into frustration and bitterness and anger and questioning and doubt. And, and, and we're not full of joy. We're not full of confidence. We're not full of hope. We don't know what to feel. How about later when it, when it all settled in for Mary? I mean, in the moment you're staring at an angel. That's probably pretty wild stuff. But, but what happened later, days and weeks later? When the news starts to settle in for us, do we, do we respond with faith and contentment or do we struggle with disappointment and resentment? That's a real life question because the Lord is never hesitant to change what we've planned if it will mature our faith. God is not as concerned about our comfort as He is about us being like Him. So He will change our plans. He will mature our faith. He will increase our love. He will bring people toward His forgiveness by bringing change into our lives. And almost invariably, that requires sacrifice. So how do we respond to sacrifice? When we get a call like this, how we react reveals a lot about our love for the Lord and our contentment in trusting Him no matter what. Mary's plans and her dreams were changed. And then finally, there was the tremendous responsibility of raising Jesus. Because God clearly told Mary why He was coming. Her child would be the Savior of mankind. So let's attack it from a human standpoint. What if she didn't do a good job raising Him? What if she wasn't a good parent? What, what, what if she didn't teach Him the right way? And, and what about Joseph? Was he going to be a detached dad? Would he even be there at all? What if he walked away? What if, what if he got fed up with the rumors and the gossip? And what if he couldn't take it anymore? What would she do? She would be a, a single mom with all that responsibility. How would she manage it? And what about Jesus himself? He's going to save people from their sins. And, and Mary knew by the law that the only way for people to receive forgiveness was through sacrifice and the shedding of blood. Was that how it was going to happen? I mean, just, just imagine all the things she might be feeling. We have to think of this humanly now. What was going to happen to Jesus? Was she going to have to say goodbye? What was going to be the cost? Would she be able to suppress her motherhood at that point and be willing to let the plan of God take place? I mean, this is for the sake of mankind. What is she going to do? This wasn't just, oh, look at my baby and we're in the manger and it's a Christmas card. There's a huge personal responsibility and attachment to that. And we've detailed at least seven ways in which Mary could have been unnerved 
and even unhappy with God's plan. So how does she respond? What does it teach us? Look back at the text for a minute. You're listening very well. Verse 46. Mary says, it's the first words out of her mouth after Elizabeth tells her what God's doing. Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. It's powerful that in the face of all the responsibility and the personal obstacles, that the full expression of Mary's heart was to give absolute praise to the Lord. She says, and let's get a little technical here now for a minute. You okay with that? She says, my soul exalts the Lord. The soul in Scripture is the very essence of who we are. It's the metaphorical Heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the soul. Scripture defines it as the breath of life, the seat of all our feelings and our desires and our affections. It's the moral framework that makes up who we are, and God says it's eternal. It never dies. So she's talking about her whole being. The word choice is not accidental, and I'll explain how it refers from verse 47 in a second. So she says, my soul, my very essence, my being, everything that I am, everything that I'm about, everything that makes up me, my soul, look at the next word, exalts the Lord. The word literally means to magnify, to bring attention to, to declare to be great, to praise and celebrate and glory in. So she says, everything that I am, is praising God. This isn't just, oh, I'm so happy. God is moving and praise Him. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but this goes ten steps past that. She is saying, everything that makes up who I am, every fiber of my being, my heart, my soul, everything that makes me me, it all wants to praise the greatness and the mercy of God, and to tell anybody who will listen, He is so wonderful. My soul magnifies the Lord. Pretty strong reaction for somebody who's just told your life's going to be radically changed at great personal cost. First response. My soul magnifies the Lord. See, this is such important spiritual principle for our lives that Mary's heart for the Lord dictated what her soul did. Her heart drove how she responded and her love for Him and her trust in Him was far more important than her personal comfort or desire or plan or hope or dream. It was more important for her to love and trust the Lord with every fiber of her being than to say, what's in it for me? Listen, if we could make that the dominant mindset of our lives, it would completely change how we think about everything. It would undeniably alter how we live, how we act, how we pray, how we praise how we serve, how we give, how we witness, how we obey, 
and how we trust. Everything would radically be changed if we said the most important thing for me from every ounce of who I am is that I love the Lord and I trust Him. There's no other way to explain how Mary could react this way. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. In other words, more attention to Him, more praise to Him, more of Him and less of me, more sacrifice, more dependence, more willingness, all the way down to the very core of who I am, I will joyfully and enthusiastically praise Him. And it's all directed toward Him. So what are we doing to do that? In our lives, in my life this morning, how is that descriptive of me that everything I'm about, everything that you're about is to praise and magnify the Lord in our lives? Are we doing that well? Or is there great deficiency because we've got too much of ourselves? This is not an obligation for Mary. This is not something, well, I've got to praise the Lord now because he's done this and I don't know what else to do. This is, this is not obligatory. This is the response of her heart in praise to God. But she doesn't stop there. Look at the next phrase. She says, my spirit rejoices. Now that may seem the same, but there are subtle differences. Let me really bore you for a second as if I haven't already done that. Soul is the Greek word Suke. It's the word that we get psychology from. Psychology is actually called the study of the soul. But more practically, it's looking at the way we think and the way we behave. So she says, my soul, my suke, the way I think and the way I behave magnifies the Lord. The word spirit is the word pneuma. It literally means, it means breath. So if you have pneumonia, it means you have an illness of your breath. So she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. What does pneuma mean? It means the rational part of our mind. It means what governs and influences how we direct our emotions and our desires and our affections. So Mary is not only saying that she's doing everything to praise and exalt the Lord, she's saying, this is a rational decision of my mind to rejoice in the Lord and in what He's doing. See, we can get emotional with the Lord and we get hyped up and we praise God and we're all excited and then that dies. Or we can become very intelligent and very intellectual and we study the Word and we become smart like the Pharisees did without any heart. The Bible says you can't separate those two things. It's your heart and your mind. They go together. Suke and Numa. They go together. And the true praise of God is when heart and mind are together saying, God be praised for what He has done. Every aspect of my being says I need to praise God. My heart and mind know it's right and know I need to trust in it and that it's believable and I am going to rejoice in God. What's the word mean? It means to be exceedingly glad. This is not normal joy. This is going to the extreme of saying, praise the Lord for what He has done. In this case, having my life transformed, my plans be altered, and people talking about me and criticizing me for taking a stand for the Lord. But I'm good with that. 
Why is she exceedingly glad? How would anybody be exceedingly glad in that moment? But here's the key. Mary knows that the Lord is loving and gracious and good. And she knows, look at it now, look back at the text. She knows that this is not about her. It is about mankind being delivered from sin. I'm sorry I made the baby cry. It's about mankind being delivered from sin. It's about the power of God's love and forgiveness. And it's about being in the center of his will and his plans. Church, is there anything better than that? Is there anything better than being in the center of God's will and seeing him work and seeing lives changed and seeing him be magnified and glorified in the world. Listen, if we as a people can find ourselves in that position, if we as a church can find ourselves in that position, then we will praise and magnify the Lord to anybody that we meet. We will be overwhelmed with joy, no matter what the cost to us personally, because we have known the love and mercy of God and we just want to praise Him and honor Him and magnify Him. And so we don't lose our perspective. Let's draw this to a close. And, and so we make sure that we don't think that we deserve some praise or that we're special because we're in God's favor. Look at one more phrase in verses 47 to 48. Mary rejoices in God, her Savior, who has regard for his humble bond slave. Let's be very clear by looking at the text. It is not anywhere in Mary's thinking that she would consider herself to be co-equal with Christ. She has the exact same sense of spiritual inadequacy and spiritual unworthiness and inability to save herself from sin that you and I had the moment that we trusted in Christ. And she knows that what is happening to her is not because she has done great things. It's because she needs salvation like the rest of the world and God is going to send it through this baby that she is going to have and that God is looking on people with love and mercy. That's why when she says, he regards me, the word literally means to look at. God regards us. He, he draws us to himself. He cares about us and looks at us and sees our condition. He saw the condition of mankind and he saw that it was broken and separated and sinful. And he said, uh-uh, I care too much. I'm going to send my son to save them. And Mary, with great perspective and great maturity, says, I'm just a bond slave. A bond slave was someone that freely and joyfully gave up their whole will to another person. And Mary does this, and we're called to do it too, because she understood the greatness of God and the measure of His grace. Look back at verse 49. She says, For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear Him. It's easy to focus on great things He has done for me. It's easy to become spoiled and entitled in our thinking. 
But the next line keeps us in check. Holy is His name. His mercy is on generation after generation to those who fear Him. This is what gives us perspective. It's not just about what we receive. It's about the one who is giving it. Without His holiness, we would not be victorious over sin. Sin would win. Without His mercy, we could not and would not, not to sound like Dr. Seuss, but listen, we could not and would not be delivered from sin if God didn't show us mercy and grace. And without His holiness and without His mercy, there's absolutely no reason to fear Him and no reason to trust in Him because we would say to ourselves, we're going to have to save ourselves. We're going to have to bail ourselves out of this somehow. Listen, the constant temptation of our heart and mind, our soul and spirit, is to live for ourselves, to control and to indulge and to demand and to complain and to bring attention to ourselves. But Mary says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not how a believer acts. A believer yields and sacrifices and depends and praises and exalts the Lord. Heart and mind together, soul and spirit Every part of our being saying, oh, we love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. We praise Him because there is no God like Him. We rejoice in His work and His leading, even though it requires something of us, because He is going to work in magnificent ways. Because He wants to save people from their sins. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. You're going to call him Jesus. You're going to call him Emmanuel, God with us. He's come to save you from your sins. Praise the Lord. Let's bow together. I know you've listened a long time, but let me take just a minute if this message has been for you this morning, if the Holy Spirit by His grace has been speaking to you, and this morning you're being challenged because you've been living for yourself, we all do it. I did it many times this week. But this has become chronic. This has become a habit not yielding yourself to the Lord, not depending on Him, not obeying Him, just doing your own thing. I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart and challenged you on that. And I pray this morning that you would yield to Him. Maybe you've never received Christ. Maybe your whole life has been about you. The Bible says now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. You understand the gospel. It's been explained this morning. It's been clear what Jesus came to do. He came to save us from our sins. And to be saved, we've got to turn from our sins and we've got to trust in Him. So if that's you this morning, I pray right now in your heart you would cry out to the Lord and ask Him to forgive you. Confess what you have done to offend Him. And I'd love to talk to you. Any of the deacons or staff would love to talk to you after the service and explain that more fully and pray with you. Please don't leave today without doing that. And for the rest of us, we have all of us 
have moments of living for ourselves. Is that the habit of your life or is it an anomaly? Can you, when the Lord moves in your life, praise God like Mary does and say, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices because God is so wonderful. Maybe God right now is bringing change into your life and maybe it's change you don't want. Can you trust Him for it? Can you praise Him for it? Even though you can't see the end right now. Even though it's unclear. He wants our dependence. Lord, we thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You for the example that Mary set for us, Lord. It's hard to fathom how she could respond with such joy and such contentment. But Lord, her faith was deep and she understood your work. Lord, I pray that you would do that in our lives. I pray you do it in my life that I would understand more and more your work and your timing and your plan. So that like her, we can say with every fiber of my being, I praise you, Lord, and I love you, Lord. Because Lord, you're worthy of that. You've never failed us. You've gone over and above with your grace and mercy. And we praise you for that this morning. Lord, we declare to you this morning publicly that we love you. Help us, Lord, to serve you more faithfully, to rejoice more openly, and to be the people that you have called us to be and you've sacrificed Jesus for us to be. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.